We can, if we are not careful, become easily creatures of habits. I wonder how many things we do that we really don't even think about. Even this morning, did you actually give great thought to brushing your teeth, assuming you did? Did you give great thought to getting in the car and driving over to church this morning, or did it just kind of happen? You ever like catch yourself as you're driving down the road, and maybe the same road you've driven down many, many times, and you kind of are there, you've arrived, and you just like, I don't even remember the trip. Because we can go through the routines of life, whether it is washing the dishes, or checking Facebook, or shopping for groceries, or yes, even coming to church. The same can certainly hold true when it involves the Bible. That we need to be careful as we approach Scripture. And that we must be careful that we haven't already made our mind up before we've even read the passage. I believe that can certainly be true as we approach this study in the book of Job. Located just before the well-known Psalms, this book and its main character tend to attract much of our attention as Bible readers. The saga that Job endures, the great trial that afflicts him, grabs our attention. It really does tug at our emotions. Justice and injustice ricochet in our mind as we attempt to make sense of this horrific ordeal which captures Job immediately in the book. So as we begin our study in this book of Job, I want us to consider an overview, and more particularly, I want us to consider several misperceptions about the book, because I I want to set a table that's fresh for each one of us, that I want us to have this fresh look at this book of Job. I truly want us to have ears to hear and eyes to see, and not having already made up our mind of what we think the book says. So I want to review from last week five misperceptions that we typically have. First, there are only three chapters. Actually, there are 42 of them, but let's admit that most of us only know the first two chapters, and then we go to the end of the story, and we see how it all ends. But in between, there are 39 other chapters of dialogue, of conversation. So there are 42 chapters, not three. The opening description of Job rises to the top of the resume. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Now that'll separate you from everybody else. But even that observation is topped seven verses later by someone larger than man. Look at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Now listen, when man says something about you, it does matter. But when God says something about you, you should really take note of that. Add in this comment at the end of chapter 1, at the end of trial 1, notice 122. In all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. At the conclusion of his first trial, the text tells us that Job did not sin. And then at the end of trial number two, at the conclusion of that trial, notice 2 verse 10. 
chapter 2, verse 10. But he said to her, his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Everything he went through, he did not sin with his lips. And so it may be tempting for us to place on Job something that really is not him. In this catastrophe, here's a second misperception. Job is sinless. It's easy to slide that direction when we hear what God has to say, when we see even Job's response to this. Did Job respond in a godly way? Absolutely. But Job was not sinless. Yes, he did not sin in this particular situation, in this specific issue, but we need to be careful of broad brushstroking that over the entirety of his life. While it does say that he did not sin with his lips, it does not say that he did not sin in his thoughts. And we'll hear the overflow of his thoughts in the verses to come that address that Job is not quite where we think he is. Is he a pious man? Yes. Is he a sinless individual? No, he isn't. Soon enough, Satan orchestrates two days of catastrophic chaos as he launches the war of all wars against Job. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. It seems to say it all regarding the activity of the diabolical one against the people of God. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There it is. Satan attacks Job. The evil one brings evil into our lives, and we say, yes, that's true. But here's a third misperception of the book. Satan acted alone in his attack. Satan does give a lot of the credit. He gets most of the credit. Do we not run to Satan made me do it? But listen to a comment from someone who is involved in that first trial. Chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. One of the servants escapes the devastation upon the sheep, upon the servants, and he recounts the scene and he describes it as the fire from God. To this servant, destruction came from God. Notice 121, Job's reflection. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. You see that to Job, God gives and God takes away. And in this situation, God has taken away Job's possessions, his servants and his children. And then notice Job's words after he loses his health at the end of the second trial, chapter 2, verse 10. In all of this, before in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Right before that, he says this, Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we accept adversity? What is Job saying? That adversity comes from God. Interesting. That Job is crediting God with this activity, with this adversity against him. 
And then there's one more observation, and really it's the one that matters most because it's God's. Notice what God himself says in chapter 2, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And here it is. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. God himself appears to take credit for the calamity which has afflicted his servant Job. Did Satan act alone in this attack? The writer seems to think differently. The servant seems to think differently. Satan seems to think differently. Job seems to think differently. Even God seems to think differently. So enter this trio of friends in chapter 2, verse 11. When the Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. So here come the friends, and they come to Job in a time of great agony, a time of great adversity. But what ultimately falls from their mouths and moves Job to defend himself are their accusations, their charges against Job of his sinfulness, of his carelessness, of, even of his self-righteousness. That these three friends hurl these assaults toward Job. In fact, then, much of the book is this verbal sparring between the three friends and Job. It's not necessarily a thing of beauty, yet it leads to a fourth misperception. Here's the fourth. The, t the trio of friends were complete losers. Actually, they did have some good. At least initially, at the end of verse 11, it does tell us that they came to mourn with him. They came to comfort him. That was their schedule. That was their plan. And they left their place and they came into his place. They came to mourn and they came to comfort, even if it did not come to fruition. And what they see when they come to Job shudders them, verse 11, verse 12. And when they raised their eyes from afar, they did not recognize him. They lifted their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe, sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. They arrive and they find an unrecognizable friend, that his suffering is so great as he is scraping the ooze coming out of his sores on his body. They don't even recognize him, and their response is to lift up their cries to God. And then they sprinkle ashes on their head, tear their robes. It's the prescribed manner in their culture to mourn with someone. They don't run and hide. They draw near and they sit down because that's what friends do. And then what comes next is truly amazing. Verse 13, they sat down with him on the ground seven days, seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his grief was very great. For seven days, seven nights, they spoke not even one word to their suffering companion because that's what friends do. Friends come and friends listen. And they're not quick to speak. And they will speak and they will give some sound doctrine. Countless historical remarks have been made at incredible moments in our history 
The book of Job is no different with several powerful statements that are recorded. One such declaration is in the 19th chapter. I invite your attention there. In chapter 19, it is the theme of many songs that have been sung over the years. Chapter 19, verse 27, verse 25, excuse me, says this, for I know that my Redeemer lives. It's a remarkable announcement of truth in the crucible of devastation and difficulty. It's a very bold assertion by a man who reacts to and responds to hardship with a right perspective about God and life. And here in Job 19, when we stop and we take notice of the context, what we find is a fifth misperception. Great statements arise in great moments. This is a great statement, and it arises in 1925, but drop back a few verses. Drop back to verse 6. Job 19, verse 6. Listen to what Job says. Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. God has wronged me? Verse 8. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. Sounds like Job is complaining about the hedge of hardship that God has placed around him. Verse 10, he breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. These are strong words from Job that God has placed around him, that God has broken his support, that God has taken away his hope. It continues in the next verse. He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. Now he declares God as an enemy and under divine wrath. Verses 13 through 20, Job asserts that God has pitted these three friends of his against him, that God has orchestrated this unfriendly plan of assault against him. This is the backstory for 1925, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Great statements don't always arise in great moments. And for Job, such a great statement came at a time when he was experiencing some shaky theology as he was ricocheting around the terrain of his life. Last year, in the process of downsizing, my wife and I looked over a dozen homes. With the wonder of internet, isn't internet, well, cannot internet be helpful sometimes? With the wonder of internet, she and I had a lot of information at our fingertips to size up the home, to identify the specs, to take a walk down the street, to take a tour of the house, all from the comfort of our own home. And you know what? It is interesting that when you have done all of that and you visit a house, that sometimes the house doesn't meet all that you've seen. You walk into a house, and there were one or two houses that I walked into, and I said, this is not even the same house that I saw online. It was a disaster. Pictures can be deceiving. The angles and the approach can be a little off, let alone what isn't even pictured. And so were some of these houses that we enthusiastically entered, thinking that what we were going to get, and yet a thud of disappointment came down. 
The old adage is certainly true, do not judge a book by its cover. Be careful to form an opinion too quickly. Don't drink the Kool-Aid that everyone else is consuming. Ask a few questions, push on some walls, look below the surface. Don't too quickly accept what everybody else seems to think. And that is true of this book of Job. And here's the sixth perception. The book is about suffering. Now, it's easy to embrace that theme since it seems to dominate the first two chapters. It seems to leave Job in that trial for 40 chapters, and then he is restored from that trial. And so we might think that, hey, if suffering sets the scene, if suffering remains the scene, and if suffering is the change from which he is delivered, why not conclude that that's the focus? Why swim upstream when the current is so strong? Well, that's a fair question, but I think there's a higher question. And my question is this, what main issue does God himself actually deal with in the book? Does God lean on the problem of suffering with Job? Does God address the sorrow and grief of man? Does God deal with the woe of humanity in a fallen world in this book? Is this what concerns God the most in his response to Job and in his silence throughout much of the book? Go back to chapter 1. The entrance of suffering does not even begin until verse 13 with the first trial. And yet prior to that, notice in verse 8, you see something quite significant. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? God emphasizes Job to Satan. And he calls Job my servant. God knows Job and takes delight in Job, even drawing attention to Job. Unremarkably, Satan hurls a question at God in the next verse. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Satan himself acknowledges that God has erected a safety net around Job, a hedge around this man. Beloved, that's what God does for his people. There's a reason why God is our refuge and our shelter, that he is our shield and our fortress. This is what he does for us. He does this for a very good reason. That even though Job and sometimes we are unaware of the protection of God and the safeguard, Satan is, here's the thought, God and Job have a relationship. God and Job have a relationship. And in the opening two chapters, that relationship is emphasized by a key, intimate, personal name for God called Yahweh. And that name, Yahweh, occurs 17 times in the first two chapters. 17 times in the first two chapters of this personal, intimate name of God because there's relationship that God has with Job, and then it vanishes. The name vanishes until chapter 38 when God himself finally speaks. 
Now that's purposeful. This special, intimate name of God vanishes for a reason. Here's why it vanishes. In the opening two chapters, Job is rightly relating to God. But beginning in chapter 3 and through chapter 38, Job is not rightly relating to God. As his view of God is distorted, as he justifies and defends himself before man. Turn to chapter 40. In chapter 40, Job reacts to each of his three friends in this back-and-forth banter throughout the book. But in chapter 40, for the first time, Job becomes silent. Because God speaks. And when God speaks, Job arrives at this conclusion. Chapter 40, verse 3. Notice the conclusion. Behold, I am vile, verse 4, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. For the first time, Job is quiet. For the first time since chapter 2, he is back to listening. Back to a vertical approach to life. At this moment, he is silent before his creator, and he's returning to a right relationship with his creator. In the second chapter of this book, Job sits down in the ashes. At the end of this book, he is sitting in the ashes, but time has changed for Job, as now he has repented, and his relationship with Yahweh has been restored God does not major on the suffering, but he majors on his relationship with Job. That's what this book is about. And while Job and his three friends trade assertions about justice and injustice, about fairness and unfairness, God doesn't. God is concerned about his relationship with Job, and to that end, Job gains through this incredibly difficult ordeal in his life, a deeper, intimate, trusting relationship with his God. Notice chapter 42. Verse 8. Having repented of his sin and having experienced restoration with God, only then does God now issue this command to Job's friends. Verse 8, Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, there it is again, my servant, that was gone for so long. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. This is God's commentary of his servant, my servant Job. This is why we shall pursue a different theme than suffering in this book in the months to come. Now, that is not to say that suffering does not occur in the book. It obviously does, but the greater focus is rightly relating to God when life seems wrong. Catch that? When your observation of life is wrong and we're not relating to God properly. Job needed to learn that, and he did, and we need to learn that, and we will. 
we're usually thankful for those individuals who show up when the world tends to check out. They're called friends, back to chapter 2. In verse 11 of chapter 2, the text informs us that these three friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they left their homes to come to Job's home, or what was left of it, and to be with Job, or someone that looked like Job. Some of us may not even have one or two friends that would drop everything, make the extended trip, stay for an undetermined time, and say not one word for seven days. Job had three of them. Even if they tend to turn on him and rely upon their own human reasoning of justice and injustice. And then what Job and these friends do begins to speak After one week, they begin to talk, and they do that for 29 chapters, chapter 3 all the way through. And then we come to the 32nd chapter. And in the 32nd chapter, we see a seventh misperception. There were only three friends. Here in Job 32, we're introduced to one more individual, a man named Elihu. Verse 4 of chapter 32 inserts a very interesting comment. Check it out, 32 verse 4. Now because they were years older than he, I love that statement. (laughs) Now because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak for Job. Here's Elihu, he shows up. We don't know at what point in the conversation of Job and the three friends, but Elihu shows up and he's, he's been waiting. He's been listening. He's deferred to the older ones. But now he speaks with calculated, careful words. Notice verse 6. I am young in years and you are very old. I love that. It's maybe not politically correct. Therefore I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said... Age should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. With straightforward truth that's couched in dignity, Elihu prefaces his remarks by stating that he has deferred even a word to the older estate of these other four men. After all, aged men should speak first because they're wiser, right? Older people are wiser, right? Well, maybe not. Look at verse, well, let's press on. Verse 9. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Elihu boldly asserts that he is waited to speak in honor of Job and his three friends, but now he wants to speak. He believes it's the time to step up to the mic and to share a few thoughts. It it kind of, I I like, my wife knows this, I I like the the talent shows. Not all of them. I probably, if I'm going to go on record, I I probably like uh, America's Got Talent. Yeah, she has, I don't even watch it enough to even know what it's titled. But, you know, it's like America's Got Talent. So you got this unassuming person that walks out on the stage And the judges are there, and they're rolling their eyes, probably folding their arms, maybe sharing a snarly remark with one another, because they don't expect anything coming out of this 
unassuming person that's walking out on the platform. Who knows how many hundreds they've already heard to that point. But what comes next is a shocker of all shockers as this individual sings and brings the house down. Great surprise. That's what happens here with Elihu. He nails it. We're going to see that in the weeks to come, that his words are incredibly insightful, amazing counsel. They say good things take time, and that will certainly be true with Elihu as he speaks these words to Job and the three friends that seem to escalate above anything that has been spoken to that point. Waiting is not easy for any of us, and it wasn't for Elihu, but the wait is worth it as he delivers this incredible insight at just the right moment to Job and the three friends. To keep quiet is a great virtue, especially since it's not our natural inclination, right, to be quiet. But we want to throw in our two cents. We want to gain an audience. After all, we've got something to share. We want someone to hear it. We believe about something strongly. We want others to know it. Constant chatter seems to be the theme of the land today, isn't it? I mean, do you ever go anywhere where it's quiet? Can't even come to church and it'd be quiet. Think about that. You go into an elevator, and what do you have in the elevator? You have elevator music. You go to a bathroom, and there's advertisements there. You can't even go into your home without getting spam on your phone. It's just constant chatter. It's everywhere. And so for Elihu to wait this long to speak is truly amazing. But you know what's even more amazing? Someone else has waited to speak, and his voice is the one you really want to hear. Here's the eighth misperception. Silence is golden. Now, I've just painted the picture for you that my vote is for silence. But when it comes to God being silent, that's not what you want. When God is silent, he is silent for a reason, a very big reason. When God doesn't speak, that's usually not good. Did you notice the book before Job? What is the book before Job? Now, many of you are like, Esther, very good. The book of Esther precedes the book of Job. What do you know about the book of Esther? The oddity is that God isn't mentioned, that God is quiet. God doesn't speak the entire book of Esther. And so many a Bible reader, as we read through those chapters of Esther and that book of Esther, we hold up Esther and the cousin Mordecai as amazing individuals, memorable, heroic. Maybe not. God is silent for a reason. And then we come, and that's almost like the preparation for the book of Job. That we come into Job, and God speaks for two chapters, and then God speaks nothing. He says nothing. He's quiet. He's silent. It's deafening. Until chapter 38... And we need no longer guess what's up with God and why he's been silent. He has not been pleased with what has come to his ears. Notice chapter 38. Notice the opening verse of chapter 38. 
Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, listen to what God says to Job 38.2. Who is this? I love that. Who is this? Who is this? As if God doesn't know. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Ouch. Just in case you have any doubt, this is God issuing a complaint, not a compliment to Job. And then he proceeds to undress Job for the next four chapters. And lest these three friends get a free pass, notice chapter 42. God imparts some very strong counsel to the three friends in chapter 42, verse 7. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Silence is not golden in the book of Job. As the main character and these three comforters receive a divine rebuke for their verbal interchanges, it really ought to remind us that when God is quiet, that may not be a good sign, that the silent treatment from on high should grab our attention from on low. When God seems silent, you better take notice. In this day and age of the internet, less and less seems to be private in our lives. Not that it really matters because government knows everything about us anyway, right? Turn back to the opening chapter of Job. In the opening chapter of Job, we get to lean in on his financial statement, on his asset schedule. The financial condition of Job is put front and center, chapter 1, verse 3. And his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, let's, you know, understand that today we measure our wealth in stocks and bonds and coin each in our homes. But that was an agrarian society, and so it was measured entirely different. Notice the portfolio again, verse 3, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. But then the devastation of the trials comes, and Job suddenly moves from everything to nothing. And he is sitting on these ashes, scraping the sores on his body. And then we come to the end, chapter 42. After all is said and done, God speaks to Job. Repentance occurs. Verse 10 of chapter 42 announces a summary statement, 42.10. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. It's that second sentence of restoration that surfaces a ninth misperception. Job was not restored double. Now, wait a minute. The text says that Job was given back his possessions two times over. So was he or was he not? Look again, uh, or look at the asset schedule now in chapter 42, verse 12. 
chapter 42, verse 12. This is post-trial. This is now restoration, verse 12. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Now you stay there. I'm going back to chapter 1. You stay there in 42. Let's see if he doubled everything that he had before. In chapter 1, verse 3, he had 7,000 sheep. What does he now have in chapter 42? 14,000. Check. All right, he got doubled there. Good, twofold. In chapter 1, he had 3,000 camels. Now what does he have in chapter 42? How many camels? 6,000. Check. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he had 500 yoke of oxen. How much does he have now in chapter 42? 1,000, right? 500 times 2. Now he has 1,000. Double check, okay? In chapter 1, he had 500 female donkeys. Now in chapter 42, how many female donkeys? 1,000, so that's double. Everything looks good. Seems to line up just right. Job has received double for everything he had before. But what about the family? In chapter 1, he had seven sons and three daughters. Chapter 42, verse 13, gives the update. 13 says he also had seven sons and three daughters. From seven sons and three daughters at the beginning to seven sons and three daughters at the end doesn't seem double if we get the math right. Otherwise, it would be 14 sons and six daughters. So is verse 10 true? Did Job, was he not restored twice? Did not God give back to Job twice as much as he had before? If we're not careful, we may tend to gravitate toward that. But what God does do is something different. Now, go with me for a moment. Livestock and camels and oxen are not the same as humans. You get that? We humans don't usually go around on all fours. Maybe at some point we do when we're trying to find something. But what separates the animals from humanity is something very important called a soul. Animals have a temporary existence. Humans have an eternal existence. That moment in chapter 2 of Genesis when God breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul, a living human being, there the soul was imparted to man. How does that connect with Job and his family? God did not give Job 14 more uh, sons and six more daughters because Job already had seven sons and three daughters and yes, they had passed away, but yes, they were still alive because they have a soul. And if you're tracking with me, there is no need for God to replace the original sons and daughters because they still live. They have souls. Death does not end the existence of our loved ones who pass on. And so Job, having lost seven sons and three daughters, really did not lose them. Because they still have a soul and they still live on. God, and only God can do that. While the first two chapters and the last chapter get most of our attention, after all, there are only three chapters. Next up is God's oration. I mean, if you think about what do you know about Job, you know the first two chapters, you know the last chapter, and then we tend to remember, oh yeah, there's that long oration of God of 77 
questions as he kind of disrobes Job. And in those 77 questions over 126 verses of four chapters, clearly seems to win the prize of the longest speech, but it really doesn't. Here's the final misconception. God has the longest speech. Actually, it's not God, but Job. Job speaks from chapters 26 through 31. That's six chapters. That's 161 verses. Job's defensive reply lasts longer than God's offensive barrage. Yes, God will get the last word, but Job's words are more than God's, and that's something we're going to consider in the weeks to come. Oh, by the way, remember that fourth friend named Elihu? There was that younger guy who allowed the olders to speak first, including Job. Perhaps we ought to give him a little more consideration in our journey through this book of Job for four reasons. Number one, his uninterrupted speech in chapters 32 through 37, though one verse shorter than Job's, has more words. So actually, Elihu has the longest uninterrupted speech. Secondly, God does not speak until after Elihu speaks. God waits to speak until after Elihu does. Could that be similar to John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus to come as Elihu prepares the way for God to speak? Third, at the end of the book, God rebukes Job. God rebukes the three friends of Job. But God does not call out Elihu with good reason. Because what Elihu has said is spot on, that Elihu has corrected the crooked thinking of God that's persisted between Job and his three friends. And then fourth, could it be that one of the missed keys all along in the book of Job is the wise counsel that comes from the very mouth of the youngest participant, Elihu. Now, could it be that Elihu, that his words are really the key to understanding this book of Job? Join us for the journey as we start next week in chapter 1 with a broader lens and a fresher look that things may not always be as they seem, even in our own life, Right? Let me leave you with this. When God is distorted, doubted, or denied, we will get us wrong and we will get life wrong. Life is hard. Jesus never promised that we would have an easy life when we came to know him as Lord and Savior. And when our view of God is right, we will get us right and we will get our life right. Trust him but make sure you have the right view of God when you trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for this wisdom book of Job and how it's situated between the silence of Esther and the songs of the Psalms.
Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that your word is so incredibly deep, that there's so much more there than meets the eye. Help us, I pray, as we come to Scripture, that we come with that freshness, with that desire to hear from you, and for not us to already speak, thinking we know what the text says before we even read it. I pray that we would give great consideration this hour to our relationship with you. Are we rightly related to you? Are we thinking rightly? Is our view of you right? Or have we begun to doubt who you are? Your faithfulness, your presence, your goodness, your love. Forgive us, Lord. We know when we begin to doubt, then we begin to skew our identity. And then we get our life wrong. So return us back to good theology. For when we get you right, we get us right, and our life gets right. So we want to give you the glory, we pray. In your son's name, amen. You have just finished listening to an audio recording of a sermon from Fellowship Baptist Church of Dublin, Ohio. For more information about our ministries or to find out ways to support our mission efforts, please visit www.fpcdublin.org.